Our scriptures teach us that these things point us to something greater than the sign itself. First Corinthians chapter 11 is one of those passages, it's a lengthy passage, and so I'll just say right up front that there is absolutely no way that we can do a thorough study of these verses because it covers verses 17 all the way through 34. So there's no way that we can look in any detail in those verses, but what we're going to do is we'll look at the verses, we'll do it rather quickly, and then from that we want to ask three questions, and those three questions the text will answer for us, and by answering those three questions they will help us to understand this thing called the Lord's table more fully, more accurately, more correctly. And those three questions that we're going to be working towards are this. Number one, what is it? What is this thing called the Lord's table? Number two... Who is invited to participate in the Lord's table? And then number three, how should one participate in the Lord's table? So the text will answer those three questions for us. But before we get there, we're going to do just, like I say, a very quick trek through these verses, starting from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Now, what always happens when we take a moment to go to another passage of Scripture that we haven't been systematically working through, we need to pause and just remind ourselves of a little bit of a context. The letter to the Corinthians is a letter to a troubled church. The church in Corinth was just a church that just had issues. You ever known somebody in your life that just has issues? They just always have issues. You don't need to point to anybody in the room, but we all know somebody that has just issues if you were to personify the, the, the church in Corinth, it would be that person that just always seems to have issues. And the church in Corinth had a lot of issues. Now, one of the central issues that they had was the issue of division. There was much division in the church. And so if the church at Philippi was the model church of unity, the church in Corinth was the polar opposite of that. They were the model church of disunity of division. In fact, the letter to the Corinthians begins on that note from chapter 1 and verse 10. You remember how Paul says that I've I've gotten this letter from Chloe's household and she tells me in this letter that there's divisions among you and that some of you are saying we follow Paul and others are saying we follow Apollos and others are saying we're the real spiritual ones and we just follow Jesus and Paul's saying I'll have none of that. So the the whole letter begins on this note of divisiveness, of division within the church. And so Paul is battling throughout the letter this division that manifests itself in a number of different ways. And one of the ways that the division manifests itself is going to be at the table. And so with that quick introduction, let's begin by reading our passage from verse 17 down through the end of the chapter. So beginning from 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's table that you eat for in eating. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So this lengthy section here, Paul obviously has a lot to say to this church in Corinth. And once again, we just... I just want to make it clear that we, there's no way that we're going to completely cover this passage because there's a lot in here. And in, in addition to that, a number of the verses in this passage are really difficult verses, really problematic verses, not only to just simply translate, but to interpret. So a thorough treatment of this passage would take really several weeks to walk through. and We're not going to take that much time, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin just by very quickly going through the passage and just recognizing what's happening what Paul is rebuking, what the situation is, and then we'll return to those three questions, and then we will look to the text, and the text will answer those questions for us. And then in the end, uh, the result will be that we will all have a good understanding of what the Lord has for us in this thing called the Lord's table. So let's begin with chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17. We begin back in verse 17, and Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So just a reminder of the context Right before that, the first part of the chapter was that passage that we all know so well, one of those favorite passages of preachers to preach on Sunday morning, the head covering passage, right? We all understand exactly what's going on with the head covering passage, right? Just kidding. We we certainly don't have time to talk about the head covering passage this morning, only to say this. Paul commends them in the first half of the chapter to say to them, I commend you because there was apparently this tradition, this head covering tradition that Paul taught to the Corinthian church. Paul believed that whatever this head covering tradition was, was appropriate and helpful for that church. And so he taught them that tradition. And so he begins the chapter by commending them to say, you got that and you've done really well with that. Now, when we come to this section, Paul turns everything on a dime and to say, well, I just got done commending you about your head coverings, but now everything's different. In verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you have come together, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, when you're coming together for the supper, you would be better to not come together at all. You'd be better not to have the Lord's table than what you're doing as you have the Lord's table, because what you're doing as you come together for the Lord's table is so far off the mark, you would be better to not do it at all, he says. For in the first place, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And that's a little bit confusing where Paul says, I believe it in part. I wonder what he's saying there. 
And there are kind of two, two schools of thought there where Paul says, I believe it in part. Perhaps he's, he's using a little bit of pastoral restraint here to say something to the effect that I, I, I think I believe this, but I'm going to reserve final judgment for when I see it for myself. And he's just maybe using a little bit of pastoral wisdom and a little bit of restraint there to say, I've got no reason to believe this is not true, but I'm going to hold off on final judgment until I actually see this in person. Perhaps that's what he's saying. Or perhaps this is more like an expression for Paul to say, I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. I hear there's divisions among you and I just can't believe it. Right. So either way, it doesn't affect the the meaning of the passage, but it is a little bit of a confusing statement that Paul makes. I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. Now, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, that is a very problematic verse because it's, it's a little difficult to really get at what Paul's saying here. He could be saying maybe one of two things. There there must be divisions or there must be factions. I hear that there's divisions among you. It's hard to believe, but I hear there's divisions among you. But there must be divisions in order for those who are genuine to be recognized. So some think that Paul here is just recognizing the fact, the reality that Scripture often teaches us, going back to things like the the, uh, parable of the tares and the wheat where Jesus recognizes that his church will always, in this fallen world, always be a mixture of the true believers and those who are professing belief but aren't truly converted. And then this this sort of teaching is sprinkled all throughout our New Testaments, this, this reality that the church here in this fallen age will never be a pure church. So perhaps Paul is just recognizing that, well, there's going to be divisions because... There are true believers, and then there's professing believers that aren't true believers. Perhaps he's doing that, but I tend to think that instead of instead of that, I think what Paul is doing here is he is sarcastically repeating a proverb that the Corinthians are repeating in order to justify their divisions among themselves. Okay, so Paul, we all know that he's very much capable, don't we? He's very capable of using sarcasm. Paul uses sarcasm quite frequently, especially when he is rebuking a church. And so perhaps he's sarcastically quoting the proverb that they're saying to each other to justify the fact that they're not unified. And they're going around, you know, there's this disunity in the church and they're saying, well, there has to be disunity because how else are you going to tell the true believers from from all those other false believers over there on the other side of the room? I think that that's more or less what Paul is getting at, that he is being sarcastic and saying, and this is what you say to justify yourself. There has to be divisions between the true believers and the, and the, and the not so true believers, right? But either way, again, this is another statement that though it's confusing and difficult, and we're not going to spend the time to really dig into it any more than that, other than to say, this seems to fit the context best. Either way, it doesn't affect the meaning of the passage. So having said that, now let's move on to verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, what you're doing is you are maybe eating some bread, you're drinking from a cup, maybe you're saying some words, maybe you're praying, but what you're doing is not the supper. What you're doing might look like the supper, but it is not the Lord's table that you're doing. The nature of what you're doing might look the same on the outside, the actions that you're taking, the, the food that you're partaking of, all those things might look like the supper. You might even call it the supper, but it's not the supper. For in eating, verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and one gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat in or drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate, humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Forget it. So here's what's happening. The situation there in Corinth is this, that the church is a mixture of socioeconomic classes. And the church has always, since its very inception, has always been a mixture of socioeconomic classes, just like the society in which it lives. And so the church from the earliest days has had those among the church that are the haves, and they've had those among the church that are the have-nots. Now, the church has always been made up of a vast majority of the have-nots in such a way that in most cultures, the church represents a disproportionate mixture of the haves and the have-nots in relation to the society in which they exist. Now, that is a fact that, that is true in church history that is difficult to see in our culture. It's obscured in our culture. And the reason for that is because this church, our church, this specific local body, as well as the, the body of Christ in our culture, exists in a culture that is a culture of the haves. More, more so than any generation to ever live, the poorest among us is far more wealthy than 99.8% of the rest of the people that live in the world. So it's a little bit obscured in the church in America. But that is to say that if you were to look at the church globally and you were to look at the history of the church globally, it's always had a mixture of the haves and the have-nots, but it's never been a true representation of society because the, cult, the, the, uh, the gospel has always tended to have quicker traction with the have-nots because the haves tend to be more satisfied in life and tend to be less moved in their spirits, so to speak, for the gospel. Jesus himself affirms this when he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of, of a needle than for a person of wealth to repent and to believe upon the gospel, right? So we've always recognized this, and the church in Corinth is no different. It's a mixture of the haves and the have-nots. Now, every church that's a mixture of the haves and the have-nots, always there's always been a tension, and the tension has existed even in the early church. Sometimes we make an, an ideal out of the early church as if to say the early church was perfect. And the early church struggled with the same sort of division, the same sort of discrimination between the haves and the have-nots as the church has always struggled with. Think of the words of James in James chapter 2 when he says, you know, when you have one come among you that's one of the haves, and you tell a couple of the have-nots that have a good seat to get up and move to the back so that the have can have the better seat, then James rebukes them for that. Or think of uh, Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, when the whole situation there was the situation that there's these widows, they're the widows who are connected to the groups of the have-nots, and they are not being treated fairly because the widows of the groups of the haves are treating them unfairly. So we've seen this sort of thing always in the history of the church. And this is what's really coming to issue here in the church in Corinth. Now, this is providing an opportunity for this division among the church to manifest itself. Because what apparently is happening is that they're coming together for the supper. And this coming together, you know, the church in Corinth never had a problem with the people coming together. The church in Corinth never had a problem that people just weren't showing up for worship. The church in Corinth never had a problem that when the people were coming, they didn't, they didn't want to partake in the table or anything. The church in Corinth, they were getting together 
regularly, weekly. And when they were doing it, they were getting together for the supper. The problem is the way that it was happening. So these divisions are being made manifest in the way that they're coming together for the table. Paul says, some of you are bringing all of your food from home and you're not sharing it and you're gorging yourself, you're indulging in it. And then others haven't even arrived yet and then they don't have anything. So the the situation that, that Paul seems to be describing is a situation in which the haves, being people that are the haves, maybe they are better equipped to get there earlier. On the Lord's Day, they don't have to work in the fields. They don't have to finish up the harvest. They don't have to take care of the livestock. They don't have to do chores or what, whatever. And so the haves, maybe they can get there earlier. And being the haves, they're bringing lots of good food with them. And they're not waiting for the have-nots, which perhaps they're having to work some on the Lord's Day, maybe in the fields, maybe finishing up the harvest, maybe taking care of the animals, whatever their task, whatever their job may be. And they're getting there later. And then as they get there, they're all tired and dirty. They've been working half a day on the Lord's Day. Their their clothes are all dirty. And they get there and they don't don't bring any food because they don't have any food to really bring. And the, the haves have not only already been there and eaten their food while not waiting on the others, but then they proceeded to go ahead and just sort of get tanked. And now they're indulging themselves in the wine. And so by the time the have-nots show up, not only is there no more food, but the place is sort of a loud raucous now because the haves are now on their second or third bottle of wine. That's sort of the scenario that Paul's uh, painting for us here. And so he's saying that this situation is just so unlike the supper. This is so unlike the Lord's table that you cannot even call this rightly the Lord's table. So Paul then goes from there to recount to them how the, the supper, the table was instituted. He gives this account of on the night of Jesus' betrayal, this will be in the upper room on the night of Jesus' arrest and how Jesus then transforms the Passover meal into what we know of as as the supper. We would say He fulfills the Passover meal. He fulfills this Passover meal and transforms it into what we call the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. Now, the letter to the Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels, so this is the first account that we have of those events in the upper room. And Paul's accounting of this, conforms completely with the three synoptic Gospels and how they tell us that Jesus on this night takes the bread, breaks the bread, says, this is my body broken for you, takes the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And then he gives these instructions, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then he goes on with these, this stern warning, whoever does this must examine themselves, discern the body, For if you do not do that, if you eat this in an unworthy manner, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Okay, So now that's the context of what Paul lays out for us. This this, uh, terribly defunct table that they're having, this, this ceremony that they're calling the table that's not even qualified as coming to the table. So now let's return to our three questions and then we ask the three questions and they will guide us through thinking through the passage and seeing what the, what the table is to be for God's people today. So the first question is this, what is the table of the Lord? What is the Lord's table? Well, the Lord's table is one of what we call an ordinance. There's another word that sort of corresponds with that. The word would be sacraments, but we use the word ordinance because ordinance is a, is a much more helpful word. So the church has two ordinances. 
Now, an ordinance is this. An ordinance is a practice that the church practices on a regular basis that meets certain criteria. Number one, it was given to us directly by Jesus. Jesus commanded us to do this and commanded us to do it repeatedly. Number two, the practice corresponds directly to the gospel. And it is a gospel practice for us, showing us reality about our life in Christ. Okay, so that's what an ordinance is. So Jesus commanded us to do a lot of things. He commanded us to love our neighbor, to pray for one another. He commanded us to forgive one another. But all those things are not ordinances. An ordinance is something Jesus commanded us to do as the body on a regular basis. And it has something to do directly with the gospel. So there are two ordinances. And those ordinances are, first of all, the ordinance of baptism and then the ordinance of the supper. So these two ordinances, Jesus commanded us to to do these on a regular basis. First of all, and he says to us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and uh, go and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he tells us to, to practice this thing called baptism. And we've talked before about baptism and how baptism is a sign for us. It is an acting out of conversion. The baptism act is an acting out of the beginning of the Christian life. But then he also gives us this second ordinance, which is the ordinance of the supper. He says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then he establishes it this way. And as we'll talk about this, we'll see how this is also an acting out of the gospel. So these are the two ordinances that we have. Now, what is an ordinance? We, we kind of said what it was in a technical way, but let's, let's really kind of get at what is this thing called an ordinance. And an ordinance, the best way to think of this is a sign. We can all grasp the concept of a sign and how a sign points us to something. And so a sign is something, listen to this part, a sign is something that points you to something that is two things, different from the sign and greater than the sign. A sign points you to something that is not the sign, but is indeed greater than the sign. Now, this is common sense. Think about a sign right now. If you think of a sign that points you somewhere, and I'm just going to use it as as an example, the sign that points you to Stone Mountain Park. Okay, so there's signs around the area that point you to Stone Mountain Park. Some of them are the green highway signs. Some of them are the brown highway signs. But they point you to this place called Stone Mountain Park. Now, they will give you directions. They will they will help you to get there. But would anybody in their right mind say, you know, what are you doing this afternoon? I'm going to go to Stone Mountain. Okay. Hope you have a great time. And then you leave and you go right up here and you get on to 77 and you get off right there in 21 where there's that sign for Stone Mountain and you pull over right there and you get out and you say, wow, isn't this nice? But actually, it's not really as nice as I thought. The view just isn't. I heard this was a really good view and the view just isn't all that great. Plus, it's kind of loud, a lot of traffic noise. I didn't expect there to be this much traffic noise at Stone Mountain. How ridiculous. Because the sign is not the reality the sign points to. The reality the sign points to is different from the sign, and the reality the sign points to is greater than the sign. Would anybody say, 
we could either go to Stone Mountain sign or Stone Mountain itself. No, the, the reality that the sign takes you to is the reality that you want to go to. That is how ordinances work. Ordinances are signs. Now, if you can grasp this concept of a sign, then you're automatically grasping a great deal of your faith because so much of the Christian faith has to do with signs. So these two ordinances are for us a sign that point to a reality that's different from the sign and greater than the, than the sign. That will help you if you are someone that from your background, you might struggle with understanding the supper from a more liturgical sort of background. Let me just say from perhaps a Roman Catholic background. I don't know if anybody here is from a Roman Catholic background. But if you are from a Roman Catholic background, then what you are taught to understand the supper or to use their word, the mass, is absolutely what I just talked about. It's an absolutely a confusing of the sign and the reality. That's what the mass is. The Catholic mass is a total confusion of the sign and the reality the sign is supposed to point you to. Because in that system of of doctrine and theology, the sign itself, the mass itself, becomes the means of grace. Same thing with baptism. Same exact thing. That's why people get confused and believe that an act of sprinkling some water on a baby delivered that baby from original sin. Because they confused the sign and the reality the sign was supposed to point you to. If you get the difference between a sign and the reality, then that type of doctrine will completely fall apart for you. Because our scriptures teach us that these things point us to something greater than the sign itself. 